Welcome to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Audio Blog, where we strive to share an authentic interpretation of Mason's life work. We thank you for joining us and hope you enjoy the program. High School at Home with Charlotte Mason by Art Middlecoff, recorded live. I just want to thank everyone who's joining and who's taking seriously their call to be a parent. It's God's call on your life to be a parent, and the fact that you are taking time out to participate in this discussion means that you're taking that call seriously, and I commend you for that, and I'm delighted to be able to offer up anything I can that can support you and help you in that uh, holy and wonderful mission. And to tell you a little bit about me, um, so I'm the father of three children. Uh, My children right now are ages 21, 18, and 13. And I, with my wife Barbara and I, we've homeschooled all of them from birth to high school graduation. And uh, the oldest, my 21-year-old, is a senior in college studying mechanical engineering. The middle child is my daughter, who's a sophomore in college studying agricultural business. And then my youngest is still at home. And uh, I was uh, very fortunate to have discovered Charlotte Mason um, at the very beginning of our homeschool journey. So I've been using Charlotte Mason to the best of my ability since my youngest was five years old. So it's been a long and wonderful journey for me. For my son's college application, so you had to get a teacher or a school administrator to write a recommendation. And so I was both administrator and school teacher. And so I had the bit of an odd experience of of writing uh, a recommendation letter for for my son to go to college. So I've been through that experience and it was really, um, it was really something else. So what I want to start about, we're talking about Charlotte Mason in high school, and I think high school, even more so than any other year, is time to take a moment to reflect on what an authentic Charlotte Mason education is. And I want to start by just saying that I don't believe that there are any formulas for a Charlotte Mason education. So I'm not here to offer you a formula for high school or for anything else about Charlotte Mason, but I do think that a framework can help you make some of your decisions. And so what I'd like to do is share with you some ideas that can hopefully be a framework to help you on your journey. In terms of that framework, um, I believe that there are three keys to an authentic Charlotte Mason education. And what I mean by that is to applying Charlotte Mason's ideas to your home and to your life and to your family. And uh, there's kind of three C's I use to describe that in terms of the way that you would adopt Charlotte Mason's ideas authentically into your life. One of them is your conscience. Another one is your context. And another one is calling. And here I mean the calling of your children. And these are all unique things that need to be taken carefully into account in your thoughts. So in conscience, Charlotte Mason spoke very highly of the mother's intuition. And in the opening pages of Home Education, she has this quote from F.D. Maurice, where she said, the woman receives from the Spirit of God himself the intuitions into the child's character, the capacity of appreciating its strength and its weakness, the faculty of calling forth the one and sustaining the other, in which lies the mystery of education, apart from which all its rules and measures are utterly vain and ineffectual. This is how Charlotte Mason opened up her philosophy of education. It's so different from any other approach to education because what she says in quoting Maurice is she says that the mystery of education begins with the intuition that the mother has from the Spirit of God. This is a completely different way of thinking about education. And so I'm not here to provide rules and measures which will ultimately be vain and ineffectual. I'm here to share with you ideas that combined with your conscience, the Holy Spirit of God speaking to your heart, you'll be able to apply to your family in a unique way that you alone can do. So the second um, area that I want to talk about is context. And so the way I believe that Charlotte Mason's writing should be applied authentically is first, I like to do a lot of research to understand what Charlotte Mason actually implemented in the historical PNEU schools, um, but then not to just go and recreate those exactly and, and imitate them in the modern era, but I want to understand what she did in her schools so that I can deduce or infer 
the principles which informed those practices. Why did she and her uh, followers implement these particular practices? What principles were guiding that? And then I want to take those principles and apply them, at least for me, in a North American 21st century context. But wherever you may be in the world, the Philippines or anywhere else, applying those principles in your context. And then fourth is to then further apply those principles to your unique situation. So when I go back and talk about what happened in Charlotte Mason schools, I'm not saying because she did this, she did X, we should do X. What I'm saying is that she herself, I believe, with uh, listening to her intuition and the Holy Spirit working in her heart, implemented certain practices based on principles that we can apply in our unique situation today. And then the third um, element, I think, of an authentic Charlotte Mason education is the calling of your child and to recognize that your child is unique. And uh, Charlotte Mason wrote that each person and this is referring to children, each person in whatever station requires preparation for his calling. First, the general preparation of being a person, ready and fit, and next, a special preparation of training and teaching for the particular work in question. And this quote from ourselves, to me, I think provides a, a framework to think about how to educate children, especially in high school. Because this idea of a general preparation that is required of all persons to be ready and fit for life is so essential to keep your focus on that vision in high school, but also to recognize that in high school, more so than the earlier years, the idea of special preparation for the particular work of your growing child will become more and more important. And so uh, in these two kinds of preparation, um, the, the general preparation and the special. So these two kinds of preparation, the general preparation is, I believe, a preparation for life. And so in this preparation for life, this very well-known quote where Charlotte Mason said, the question is not, and this is talking about, you know, evaluating education. The question is not how much does the youth know when he has finished his education, but how much does he care? And about how many orders of things does he care? In fact, how large is the room in which he finds his feet set? And therefore, how full is the life he has set before him? And she also says, it is the man who has read and thought on many subjects, who is, with the necessary training, the most capable, whether in handling tools, drawing plans, or keeping books. This preparation for life is so, so important. And, uh, and I think in our knowledge economy and in our 21st century, um, companies are looking for people, workers, who are prepared for life. Companies are looking for well-rounded people who aren't just uh, concerned about what they know, but who care and who care about a wide range and order of things. So I think Charlotte Mason was very prophetic in terms of recognizing that the most capable person is the person who's read and thought on many, many subjects. So that's the general preparation. But there's also a special preparation, a vocation preparation. And Charlotte Mason, for example, in ourselves, she, she mentioned that some boys at an early age, for example, know that they're being brought up for the Navy. Now, Charlotte Mason is very clear in saying that that vocational training should not be the major focus in the, in the school years for children, and that we shouldn't put children on a narrow path of just pre preparing for one vocation, because that would go against the principle about preparation for life. That being said, there is a reality of where vocation preparation does start to play a part. And even Charlotte Mason herself acknowledged this. And this is in an article in the Parents Review in 1919. And she was talking about the uh, matriculation, a special exam, kind of loosely like our SAT or ACT. And uh, she writes in the Parents Review, in order that a girl may get the full advantage of the course of reading in Form 6, and that's the last form in the PNEU schools, she should do the work of that form until her 17th birthday. Then, still in connection with the Parents Union School, she should work for matriculation during her last year, 17 to 18, as a girl would work from any school. It is desirable that a candidate for matriculation should throughout her course keep up her parents' union school work in Latin and mathematics. So what Charlotte Mason is saying is that if you know that your particular student back in 1919 is going to have to go to college and go through matriculation, 
don't put blinders on and, and naively just kind of say, well, we finished form six and we finished everything in the, in the PNEU programs and just sent our kids off to the world. She said that some special preparation was required in some cases and some, some customization was needed. So these are examples of those two preparations. Now, of these two um, types of preparation, there are two different goals but they're both developed by knowledge and I believe they're both taught in a living way. So life is ultimately the goal, as we showed from the previous quote, is caring. It's not about whether the student, whether your child knows the names of 20 composers or 30 composers or 60 composers or has memorized the picture of uh, 12 different famous artworks or 50 different famous artworks, but does your child care and have a genuine relationship with art and music and so on? And so the measure of or the goal in preparation for life is caring developing a caring, a relationship between your child and as many different kinds of knowledge as possible. But when we talk about vocation, the focus and the goal changes a little bit because in vocation, at the end of the day, you have to have certain competencies. And so competencies do have specific measurable hurdles. If you want to be a doctor, you have to have proven, it's not enough to just care about medicine. You have to have proven competencies. If you want to be a pastor, it's not enough to just care about your congregation. You have to demonstrate that you have knowledge of Greek and Hebrew and so on. These are measurable competencies or hurdles that have to be crossed in order to be able to carry out a calling. Remember the word vocation comes from the Latin word vocare, which means a call. So vocation is our calling from the Lord. And so if you, if, if God has called your child to a particular walk in life, there are certain competencies that he or she will need to develop. And some of those may need to happen in the high school years. And so uh, one example I like to share about is a woman I met who is a, a veterinarian. And I said, why are you a veterinarian? And she said, well, I decided I knew when I was five years old that I wanted to be a, a vet. And I thought about what responsibility that decision would have placed upon this woman's parents. So as a five-year-old, she decided that that was her calling. She never looked back. Now, if her parents had not had the forethought to think about the competencies that their daughter was going to need to pursue her calling of being a vet and had not given enough attention in her high school years to preparation for that vocation, that would have made it very difficult for this woman to achieve the role in life that she had achieved in terms of being a vet. That's an example that I like to share because I think it's so important to take into account. Um, now, both of those, whether it's prepare, preparation for life through caring or preparation through vocation for competencies, I believe that the Charlotte Mason method um, Charlotte Mason claims, and I believe the claim is true, that there is a living way to teach all of these subjects, whether it's for life or for vocation, whether it's for caring or whether it's for competence. Um, Charlotte Mason said in uh, what I think is probably the greatest overall essay written on education, um, The Great Recognition in Volume 2, Parents and Children, she said, we are told that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is life. Therefore, that which is dead, dry as dust, mere bare bones, can have no affinity with him. There is no subject which has not a fresh and living way of approach. And so the challenge and the opportunity for the Charlotte Mason method in high school is to find and utilize a living way to teach all subjects, even some of the specialized subjects that may not appear in every family or school's curriculum. Now I want to kind of move on to talk a little bit about those two dimensions, preparation for life and preparation for calling. And I'm going to start with preparation for life in the high school years. At the Soiree Conference back in 2019, I gave a talk uh, entitled Gratitude and, and Regret, A Parent Looks Back. At this point, my, uh, my oldest was, uh, was, had been in college for, I think, maybe two years. And, uh, and I wanted to have the opportunity to just share kind of among friends, uh, what were my lessons learned? What were the things that I, that I was happy that I had done as a parent? Um, and what were the regrets? What would I have wanted to do differently? And those regrets I want to share, not because I want to feel bad about those things, but because I want to encourage 
other parents to maybe learn from my mistakes so that they don't have to, to make the same ones. I said, one of my regrets, and so this is kind of the message that I shared with those parents back in 2019, is don't neglect the feast in high school. And what do I mean by the feast? Uh, you know, If you're in Charlotte Mason circles, the feast refers to the feast of knowledge or the banquet of ideas, the banquet of subjects. The idea here is that the feast is wide and it's varied. And so the idea is the hallmark of Charlotte Mason education is that it's a very wide and rich curriculum covering many, many, many different areas. And so what I would urge you to do is to not narrow down the feast in high school, but to keep it wide and broad and abundant. And so some areas that maybe you might start to feel the temptation to start to trim out of the feast, but I would encourage you to not trim out of the feast, is nature study, picture study, music appreciation, notebooks, and by notebooks, I mean the book of centuries and the commonplace book where you enter, you write out uh, quotations from books that you're reading, and worldview formation. Um, and so these are five areas where as you start to get your eyes on preparation for vocation, make sure that that doesn't neglect these key areas. And I want to talk a little bit about each one of them. First, about nature study. Rose Amy Pennethorne was the organizing secretary of the PNEU in some of the years after Charlotte Mason's death. And in a, in a uh, Parents Review article in 1935, she wrote, it is sadly true that many people look upon any form of nature study as something for the babies, which is outgrown, of course, by noble people in their teens. Um, and she's sharing this as a lament. She's saying it's sadly true. I've heard people uh, talk about the Charlotte Mason method and say, oh, isn't it nice that Charlotte Mason encourages children to frolic in nature? And uh, to me, that is such a that is such a uh, caricature of what Charlotte Mason means by nature study. And the idea of nature study is that it's not intended to be a time just for children to frolic in nature, but it's meant to be a lifelong pursuit. And that nature study is something that enriches the lives of teenagers. It's not outgrown by the noble people in their teens, but it should be Nature study should grow up with them. And in Pennethorne's article, she talks about some ways to have nature study grow up with the teens. Um, so that's so very important. And then I want to talk a bit about worldview formation. Uh, I think this is a critical part of a Charlotte Mason education, especially in the high school years. And worldview was something that was a key motivator in Charlotte Mason being interested in education and talking about a philosophy of education. Back in 1886, she had a series of lectures in which she introduced her philosophy of education to the world. And in her last lecture, she revealed uh, a lot of what was motivating her to share in the church in a, in a series of lectures in a church, what was the importance of teaching about a model and a method of education? And she said, for the sake of the children yet to be born, let the girls be brought up in abhorrence and dread of this black offense of unbelief. She said, but let their zeal be according to knowledge. Lay the foundations of their faith. Put earnest intellectual works into their hands. Let them feel the necessity of bracing up every power of mind they have to gain comprehension of the breadth and the depth of the truths they are called to believe. This is so important for the high school years. This is so important. This is the opportunity to give your high schoolers earnest intellectual works to help them understand the knowledge and the intellectual basis for faith. Charlotte Mason was ahead of her time in terms of talking about worldview formation, and she encouraged the PNEU movement. One of her primary motives was so that children would be able, so that for the sake of children yet to be born, so that a, a godly set of parents, so that these young, this, the chapter, the lecture in which this quote came from, was called Young Maidens at Home. It was a lecture about what to do when you have young maidens or teens or young women that you're teaching in your home. It was about the high school years. It's about prepare these young women to be able to go and be parents and teachers in the world who are going to help the children yet to be born, that they will grow up to be believers and that they will grow up to be Christians and that they will grow up to be members of the kingdom of God. And so that, when we carry on the legacy of Charlotte Mason, it is 
our duty and our responsibility to keep this at the forefront of what we do. Find those earnest intellectual works. Make sure that you use these high school years to help your, your young people brace up every power of mind they have to gain comprehension of the breadth and the depth of the truths they are called to believe. Christianity is not a sentimental religion. It's not just about feelings. It's not just about how emotional you can be. It's about knowledge and truth and understanding. And uh, God calls us to love him with our minds, our hearts, our souls, and our strength. And then the other point that I want to raise about preparation for life is that uh, I think it's important to give your high schooler opportunities for self-management, even if it means sometimes they fail. I think it's very hard. I've the, the title of this talk is Charlotte Mason at home or high school at home with Charlotte Mason. I think it's very hard for young people when they go off to college or into the world or into a job or into vocational school or whatever they do after high school, if that is the first opportunity when they are operating in an environment where they can fail and they don't have the safety net of home. And it is so important to give your high schooler more independence so that they have more opportunities for self-management. Again, even if it means sometimes they fail. Charlotte Mason wrote in one of the 20 principles, she said that we all need the discipline of failure as well as success. Failure teaches some powerful lessons that our students need to experience. So now uh, those are some of the things I want to emphasize about preparation for life. Now I want to talk about the second dimension about preparation for vocation. And so my, my kind of call or my appeal to parents of, of high schoolers is to not neglect this area of competencies. Now, as much as we want our children to have their feet, their feet set in a large room and have as many relationships with as many forms of knowledge as possible, it's also important that we prepare our children with the competencies that they are going to need in their future life. And some of these competencies to be thinking about are college entrance requirements, and uh, oftentimes those have implications for math, science. Technology is another area where you're never going to see technology listed in a historical Charlotte Mason program, and many Charlotte Mason curricula today won't talk about technology, but no matter what your children end up, almost any vocation that they end up with, uh, they will need some competence with technology or some facility with technology, and it's important to use the high school years to prepare for that. Essay writing can be very important, and the last one, which I'll touch on briefly, is, is SAT and ACT preparation. And when I say college, I'm using the broadest possible definition for college. I mean vocational school, trade school, I mean university, I mean liberal education, I mean STEM technology, STEM uh, preparation, whatever it is, um, or, you know, or, or whatever it is, or, or whether it's going into um, the military or going into the police force, understanding what the requirements are for that next level of training that your young person will go through before they actually enter into service in the world. And so, um, you know, I my advice would be before you begin ninth grade, my advice would be to do your best to predict what types of colleges or vocational schools your child may want to attend based on what you've been able to discern so far together with your child about possible calling that they may have from the Lord. And then to determine the range of entrance requirements for those schools. And then to actually sit down and do the discipline of making a four-year plan for the credits that will form your child's transcript. The time to do this is when your children are in eighth grade. The time to do this is not when they're in 11th or 12th grade. And if I could just plead with, with homeschool parents to think about this and to carve out some time, a week, a month, a summer, to think through this. It's so very, very important. And when I talk about credits and transcript, those can be very scary words to somebody who's early in their homeschool journey. I know it was terrifying to me. And when I saw these, these uh, you know, I was not homeschooled. I wasn't part of a homeschool um, cooperative or co-op. Um, I didn't... Uh, to have our kids take classes with anyone else. I didn't have a lot of close friends in my in my community who were homeschoolers. So so I felt like I was kind of on my own to figure out, but I but I did feel like I was called to homeschool and I felt like I was called to homeschool through high school. And so this this idea of well how am I going to get a transcript put together and how am I going to complete the entrance requirements that these colleges are going to need because you know my son indicated that he wanted to go into mechanical engineering. So 
what was I going to do to be able to open that door for him? And so one book that I found extremely helpful in this area that I read around that time of kind of pre-ninth grade was this book by Lee Bins called Setting the Records straight. And uh, it's a great book, very, very practical. And it kind of gives you the A to Z of what you need to know about transcripts, credits, and grades, and everything that, that goes into that. Um, I read this book. I, I read every nook and cranny, every word, every punctuation mark, every letter in this book. And uh, it really served me as kind of my guide to be able to ultimately write that recommendation letter. Um, this book gave me the confidence and the knowledge that I needed in order to be able to do that effectively. Now, this is not a Charlotte Mason oriented book, but it is a book that is broad enough that, uh, that if you read it thinking about what a Charlotte Mason education would look like in high school, I think that uh, you can kind of connect the dots and figure out how to take the, the elements of, uh, of preparation for life and preparation from vocation, teaching in a living way, living books, living ideas, nature study, and to package that up into a set of credits on a transcript. I think that this book um, can give you the tools that will help you. It certainly did for me. And so uh, speaking of the topic of, of math and living math, I do want to talk for a moment about Charlotte Mason math in high school. There's an article that I co-wrote with Rochelle Baburina called Math for Older Students. And if you want more information on um, this idea of what is Charlotte Mason math and what does Charlotte Mason math look like in the high school years, you can go and read that article on charlottemasonpoetry.org. Um, but Charlotte Mason math in the high school years, um, just like in the early years, involves living ideas. And living ideas are core to Charlotte Mason math. And that means that students have to work to gain understanding. Understanding of the ideas is the, the core, the foundational, the centerpiece of, of math is understanding the ideas. The student must master and understand the ideas. And ultimately, I believe that that is done through face-to-face -face interaction. It cannot be done through a video, and I don't believe it can be done just through a book, unless your child has a, a special gift for math. Um, I believe that, that math is best taught face-to-face um, or side-by-side, -side, um, and it is, a, it is a parent and student activity um, to the end based on ideas. Uh, secondly is, living, is, is uh, the discipline of habit. Habit is so essential to math instruction in some areas where habit plays out is in mental math. Mental math is important not only in the early years, but it's also important in the high school years. And so I practiced mental math with my daughter when she was learning trigonometry. And so we would sit down just like you would sit down with a, with a fourth grader and, and talk about uh, mental math with multiplication problems. I would sit down with my daughter and say, okay, Ainsley, what is the cosine of pi over two? What is the cosine of of pi over three? What is the tangent of pi? And we would do these so that she could use her mind without the, the paper or the calculator or anything else, use her mind to envision these ideas and to, to develop the discipline of habit so that she was had a very strong uh, facility with these math concepts. And then part of habit as well is reinforcing through regular review and going back and repeating things that have been learned um, until they become second nature, until they become automatic. And last is real world atmosphere. Just like in the early years, decimals are best taught through Real things like dollars and cents and counting and uh, factoring is best taught through real objects that you're going to actually count like acorns and buttons and, and how uh, division is best taught through dividing up real objects. So in the same way, the elements of upper math are best taught through their relationship to the real world. Math is always connected with the real world. We live in a world that God has designed to obey the laws of mathematics in almost every respect of the physical world is governed by mathematical laws. And the thing that has driven math research and math innovation through the centuries has been the desire of mankind to understand more about the world. And so there is always, always, always a way to connect what you're doing in math with the real world. And that makes it vibrant, that makes it relevant, and that enhances the atmosphere. And then the other really, really important uh, element of atmosphere when it comes to math in high school is, an inf is to provide an affirming environment without pressure. An affirming environment without pressure. And uh, pressure 
can be the death of a student's life of math studies. Somebody's career in math can end when pressure takes away the joy of learning. And one of the, one of the most uh, likely sources of pressure is a feeling that the parent or teacher needs to follow a certain timeline of getting a certain unit or curriculum done in a particular year and not respecting the pace and the personhood of the individual child. And so pace and mastery, you must always, always, always set your goal to be that your child will obtain mastery of mathematical concepts and practices, not that they will complete a certain pace in a certain amount of time. Because if you go, if you aim for pace, you may lose everything. If you go from mastery, you may get more than you ever dreamed you would get by focusing on pace. And in the Parents Review in 1955, a educational inspector wrote the following, there are, however, many slow by nature to grasp mathematics or grammar. What is the teacher to do about them? Or I would say, what is the parent to do about them? Keep the work relevant, suited to the child's power of understanding. Give him a program easier than that of his form. Easy enough for the confidence to return, which Miss Mason wanted. And give him a sense of mastery. And no doubt with it the assurance that this teacher can teach after all. So, so very critical. Or let the French dictate chosen be easy enough for some to get it all right. And none to feel defeated and silly. For that is to offend against their integrity. Don't offend against the integrity of your children. Don't let them feel defeated. Don't let them feel silly. Don't let your desire to see uh, Algebra 2 completed by June take away the joy of that sense of mastery. You can see in that middle paragraph the joy of the child, the young person, the young adult who feels the confidence of saying, wow, I understand this. I gave you the example of talking to my daughter about trigonometry and doing mental math. The book that we were using had one lesson to understand some of the basics of sine and cosine and radians in the unit circle. If I was going on pace, we would have spent two days on that. I spent two or three weeks on that because I didn't want my daughter to feel defeated. I didn't want her to feel silly. I wanted to give her a sense of mastery. And so I don't care about the schedules or the pace or the timeline. What I care about is her and her understanding of math. And when I made that decision, I wasn't always that way. I used to be driven by the timeline. I used to be driven by the schedule. But it was at trigonometry that I made that change because I saw that math was starting to defeat my daughter. And I knew that that was not, I knew that math was going to be a place of joy for her, not defeat for her. And so it was at trigonometry that I made that change. And I wish I could describe for you the emotion that I felt when I went to a Charlotte Mason retreat and my daughter was invited to come there and she was invited to speak on a, in a panel for teens who were being educated by the Charlotte Mason method. And I sat there in the front row and I watched. And as a question was given to her, she had the microphone and she's speaking in front of this gathering of parents. And somebody, the question was, what is your favorite subject? And she said, you know, I used to really dislike math. But then with trigonometry, things started to change. And now she said, I really enjoy math. She really enjoyed math because I set aside my pride and my sense of achievement of meeting the pace. And I instead focused on giving her the confidence which Miss Mason wanted. And now she has gone on to do more in math than I ever dreamed that she was going to do. And uh, she just wrapped up her freshman year and she took a class on uh, math for economists. And uh, she reached some point in uh, kind of this, after, did some calculus part of it. And then she reached these kind of, uh, this method of doing a particular type of problem that I'd never seen before. And it was an amazing moment when I said, wow, my daughter's actually gone farther than me in an area of math. So how much math? A Charlotte Mason graduate in Charlotte Mason's day so a graduate from high school who did everything in the programs would be able to read these books in the original language, would be able to read La Fleur Merveilleuse in French, would be able to read the Enid number seven in Latin, would be able to read Sol und Heben in German, and would be able to read Il Purgatorio in Italian. 
That was expected from a graduate of a Charlotte Mason school. Now, in terms of math, they would go as far as algebra and trigonometry. And when I say trigonometry, I think it's uh, sine, cosine, and tangent. We're not talking about law of cosines. We're not talking about uh, trigonometric identities. We're not talking about arc sine and arc tangent and so on. We're certainly not talking about precalculus or calculus. Now, this is back to my point earlier about uh, understanding our context. Now, in Charlotte Mason's day, learning four modern, you know, learning a classical language of Latin and three modern languages in addition to the mother tongue of English, that was what was important in her day. I would argue, you know, maybe let's say you give up two of these languages, you know, maybe you just pick French and Latin or Spanish and Latin and kind of drop the German and the Italian and put that into math instead and then take your children through precalculus or calculus, even if they aren't going to be math majors, even if they aren't going to be STEM students. I think it's worth considering. It's, a, it's the call I made. Um, so I didn't attempt three languages to teach my children. I focused on, on French and, uh, and Latin. So now I want to shift gears and talk about science instruction. As I've spent a lot of time studying Charlotte Mason's uh, model of teaching science, um, I've identified three main elements that she saw science instruction to contain. The qualitative, the experiential, and the quantitative. And if you want to, again, if you want to go deeper into this, uh, into these elements, um, you can read my article called The Teaching of Chemistry. And uh, that's, again, at, available at charlottemasonpoetry.org. And I go into more detail on these three elements, the qualitative, the experiential, and the quantitative. And um, so let me just kind of tell you some quotes from Charlotte Mason about how she explained those three elements. The qualitative, the qualitative, she said, these are the principles which are simple, profound, and far-reaching. These are the, the principles of science. These are the truths. These are the big ideas that help you understand the world around us, the way it works, and get you inspired about it. The experiential refers to the experiments in labs, which Charlotte Mason says are used by way of illustration. And then lastly, we have the quantitative, which are the numbers the numerical dimension of science, which is the basis of technology. Charlotte Mason wrote that, quote, the application is so technical and so minute as to be unnecessary for schoolwork or for general knowledge. Okay, so I just, what Charlotte Mason said was, in school, up until high school graduation, the focus should be the qualitative and the experiential because the quantitative, she said, is so technical and minute, it's not necessary for general knowledge. So what does she mean by general knowledge? She means that, remember my earlier slide about preparation for life and preparation for vocation. She said you don't need that quantitative element of science instruction to have preparation for life and to care. Now, with all due, you know, I, I understand where Charlotte Mason is coming from, and I think that that may be true still in our day and age up to a certain point, maybe let's say through eighth or ninth grade. But in my view, in the world that we live in today, I believe that some mastery of the quantitative element of science is necessary for general knowledge. I think that children going out into the world we live in today need to understand some of the quantitative aspects of science. That's my personal belief. And furthermore, for some people going into vocational training, remember the example of my uh, my veterinarian friend. She could not have gone into the college that would have prepared her for veterinarian school if she didn't have a quantitative exposure to science in high school. Now, the good news is that we don't have to give up teaching in a living way, even if we incorporate the quantitative element of science instruction. Charlotte Mason wrote in the same book, she wrote, I have so far urged that knowledge is necessary to men and that in the initial stages, it must be conveyed through a literary medium, whether it be knowledge of physics or of letters, because there would seem to be some inherent quality in mind which prepares it to respond to this form of appeal and no other. Notice what she's saying here, physics, literary medium. This is back to my previous slide about the qualitative, the big ideas, the qualitative learning of physics she said should be done through a literary medium, living books, living books that will help your children understand the great and wonderful ideas of physics. Amen. Wonderful. 
I agree with that. That's for the qualitative element. But here's the next paragraph. I say in the initial stages, because possibly when the mind becomes conversant with knowledge of a given type, it unconsciously translates the driest formulae into living speech. Perhaps it is for some such reason that mathematics seems to fall outside this rule of literary presentation. Mathematics, like music, is a speech in itself, a speech irrefragably logical, of exquisite clarity, meeting the requirements of mind. So remember I said earlier that I believe that math instruction in the Charlotte Mason way is face-to-face -face or side-by-side. -side. It's not video. It's not just a book. It's not a living book. You don't read a living book to learn math. In the same way, you don't read a living book to learn the quantitative side of science. You have to become conversant enough with that knowledge so that the driest formula can turn into living speech. But if that formula doesn't turn into living speech, then the education will be dead. So the challenge is, if you want to teach the quantitative side of science, and I believe you should in high school, then you must find a way to take that dry formula and turn it into living speech. And so much of science instruction is dead because the formulas are dry and they stay dry and they stay dry. They never become alive because they're never combined with the living ideas that are come up through the literary form. Or they're never tied to the relevance of life through experiments and experimentation. Or the beauty of the principles are never uncovered or shared by the teacher. So my challenge or call to parents is to say, teach the quantitative element of science, but teach it in a living way. According to Charlotte Mason, it can be done. Now I want to talk about technology. I even believe that technology can be taught in a living way. I believe when Charlotte Mason said that there is no subject that does not have a living way, I believe the same thing is true for technology. If you want to read more about this, I have an article called Teaching Tech, Teaching Tech, which we'll talk about, about this and how I see this. But some basic skills that I think are, I have this under vocation, but this is really preparation for life. Anyone going into this world needs to understand, needs to, should have practice keyboarding, to know typing skills, should be able to touch type. Very important. Facility with spreadsheets is critical. My goodness, my daughter, her freshman year in agricultural business, I mean, spreadsheets was, she lived in spreadsheets. She did more in spreadsheets than she did on she probably did as much in spreadsheets as she did in documents or on paper. I mean, her whole microeconomics class, everything was done in a spreadsheet. You turn in your assignments in spreadsheets. Thank God I spent time teaching her spreadsheets when she was at home. Thank God, like the Holy Spirit and the, you know, the intuition that God gives the parent. Thank God that the Holy Spirit just kind of nudged me to say, you know what? Why don't you spend some time this year giving Ainsley some practice using spreadsheets? And I had her go through some tutorials on spreadsheets. And then I had her in our, in our chemistry experiments. I had her enter the data that she measured from her chem experience into a spreadsheet. And I taught her how to make a chart in her spreadsheet. Why? So that I could send the spreadsheet into, did I include the spreadsheet in her transcript? No. Did I tell in a letter of recommendation, did I say, oh, hey, you know, we use spreadsheets in our chemistry class? No. Why did I do it? I did it because I wanted to prepare my daughter for life. And I wanted her to know how to use a spreadsheet so that when she got to her freshman year and found herself making chart after chart after chart after chart in her economics class, she wasn't caught like a deer in the headlights, but she had experience doing it. And she had experience learning from her father in the safety and security of her own home, how a spreadsheet works. And hopefully some of my love for what you can do with spreadsheets came across through that so that she saw that spreadsheets are a beautiful and noble tool, a good thing, a gift to us. Programming is a whole other area. I, I don't believe that programming is the answer to everything. I don't believe that everyone needs to learn programming. But I think that uh, that if, if for certain types of vocation, learning programming in high school is a huge advantage. Um, and is something that can be desirable. And, and I believe that there's a living way to teach programming. And I talk about that in my teaching tech article. Essay writing is a kind of an interesting subject. I, I was listening to a podcast uh, earlier this week and the podcast people were lamenting about how so many writing curricula cause a, a stilted style. And so Charlotte Mason was concerned about that. And in her sixth volume, she said for forms five and six, in these forms, some definite teaching in the art of composition is advisable, but not too much, lest the young scholars be saddled with a stilted style which may encumber them for life. Um, in this podcast, they were talking about how um, some people can tell by an essay, like college professors are saying they could tell by an essay turned in, 
what particular writing curriculum the homeschool parent used because it creates such a formulaic form of writing. So that is something absolutely to be avoided. And the beauty of Charlotte Mason's method of teaching composition is that style is learned through a childhood of reading living books and freely narrating orally and in writing, which creates a free and rich style and not a stilted style. However, a little bit of definite teaching goes a long way. And a little bit of definite teaching is a good thing. And so again, on this podcast, this guy was saying that he turned in a five paragraph essay in his first assignment to the professor and the professor came to him and said, son, don't you ever turn in a five paragraph essay again? Because he was reacting to this idea of the stilted style. That being said, I did spend a little bit of time teaching my daughter what a five paragraph essay is. And I said, here's a little bit of a go-to format that you can use. And so she had an assignment. Uh, she had to write on a she had to write a paper that analyzed a debated topic. And she thought about different ideas. Some people were writing on gun control, some people were writing on vegetarianism. She decided she wanted to write on homeschool socialization. Homeschooling and socialization. That was her assignment. And uh, I'm just going to share with you, this was uh, for, <clears throat> this is just her opening paragraph. This is an assignment she did last semester. Um, you can read the article at charlottemasonpoetry.org, homeschooling and socialization. It's the exact word for word what she turned into a professor and she gave me permission to put it up on the website. And here's what she wrote. She said, everyone remembers the good times they had in school. And while the setting may be different for each party or hangout time, the one thing that remains constant is that everyone involved is surrounded by friends. But what about homeschooled children? If they mainly interact only with their families, where do they make friends? Most people might say that homeschooled children do not get the socialization they need in response to that question. However, research has shown that this is not the case. I like this paragraph. I mean, I like my daughter, so make, you know I'm a little bit biased. It doesn't seem stilted to me, but there's a really interesting thing where she said to me when she uh, finished her draft. She said, you know what, Dad? Remember what you taught me about that five-paragraph essay? That's all I needed. That's all I needed to write this. And uh, I'm glad I gave her that gift. I'm glad I gave her that gift. I didn't spend tons of money and tons of time going through a four-year composition program, but I taught her some very, very basic skills that she was able to use, and I think that they would be helpful. So that kind of leads to the last element, which is SAT, ACT preparation. And I'm going to go back to the quote that I shared earlier from the Parents Review, this quote again from 1919, Charlotte Mason writing about the London matriculation or responsions, two big tests that was kind of like their SAT. And she said, one lady suggested that we could take responsions or London uh, matriculation in our stride. This is precisely what we propose to do. In order that a girl may get the full advantage of the course of reading in Form 6, she should do the work of that form until her 17th birthday. Then, still in connection with the PUS, she should work for matriculation during her last year as a girl would work from any school. If you want to read about my kind of thoughts on preparation for the SAT, I have another article on my website called Charlotte Mason in the SAT. The kind of the moral, the gist of it is, I think that most of life is preparation for a good job on the SAT, but a little bit of focused preparation before the test, I believe is a good idea. Ainsley, my daughter, she said that uh, when I dropped her off at a high school to go take her ACT for the first time, she walked out when I picked her up and she said, you know what, dad, that's the first time I've ever walked into a public school was when she took that test. I'm glad that Though it was the first time she ever walked into a public school, it wasn't the first time she took an SAT test because I had her take a bunch of practice SAT tests because I feel like it would have been a doing a disservice to my daughter to have her walk in and face the time, the schedule, the pressure, the bubble sheet, the obscure questions and so on. For her to face that for the very first time, walking into a school that she had never been into before, sitting around other high schoolers who knew each other and who had done the drill and had been taking those kinds of tests all their lives, I think that would have been a, a doing a disservice to my daughter. Did I organize our curriculum around the ACT? No. Did I make sure that I carved out time so that she could approach that test with a sense of dignity 
a sense of confidence, a sense that she knew what she was doing and a sense that she could do her best? Yes, I did. Because I felt that I owed her that. Because I made the decision to homeschool her. She didn't make that decision. I made the decision to homeschool her. And when I make that decision, I take on with that decision a certain responsibility that I'm going to prepare her for life. Is it easy? No, of course it's not easy. But I didn't, is being a Christian easy? No. But I didn't sign up to be a Christian because it, would, it was easy. And I didn't sign up to homeschool because it was easy. I signed up to be a Christian because I love Jesus. And I signed up to be a homeschool parent because I love my daughter. And I love my sons. But as hard as it is to prepare for the SAT, I just want to mention to you that there are certain things that are harder than taking the SAT. As hard as it is to be a dad writing a letter of recommendation to college because there's no school administrator or school teacher to do so, that's hard. But there are things that are harder in life than that. And as important as it is to teach our children spreadsheets and keyboarding and quantitative science, ultimately, the greatest challenges that your children are going to face are not going to be solved by those. They're going to be solved by a relationship with God. I believe that if you follow the Charlotte Mason method in the high school years, you will not focus only on preparation for vocation, but you will focus on preparation for life. And I believe that there is living water for you and for your children and for your high schoolers as well. And I believe that the Charlotte Mason method is a signpost to showing you where to find it. And I believe it is worth the effort. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the program.